all that matters is. Wrong! This town deserves a better class of heavy metal podcast. I'm gonna get a. If you do not listen, then the hell with you. Walk through the gate of consciousness. Dave, 37, 36, 35. Hey, Dave, just a second. I don't want to lose my place. 34, 33, 32. Can I ask what you're doing? 31, 30. This is it. This is the countdown. 29, 28. Countdown to what? 27. What? Countdown to what? You said this was the countdown? Countdown to what? Extinction. Th- tw- made me lose my place. Oh, sorry. Also good. And welcome to And Volume For All, a deeply reverent and lovingly irreverent exploration of the history, philosophy, and future of the greatest music in the world, heavy metal. Friends. Romans. Beautiful mother-punching countrymen. We have arrived at the conclusion to our series about a secondary character in the story of heavy metal so beloved and badass, they got their own spin-off. The Saul Goodman of heavy metal. The Fraser Crane. The George Jefferson. The Laverne and or Shirley of heavy metal. Megadeth. But before we just jump right in, like this podcast is some kind of Chuck E. Cheese plastic ball pit where children too lazy or stupid to use a restroom conveniently and clandestinely soil themselves in hopes of catching the final set of Munch's make-believe band. Wait, what was I saying? Ah, yes. Dave Mustaine. When we last left the dueling Daves of death, they had picked up guitarist Marty Friedman and drummer Nick Menza mere months before recording and releasing the band's thrash metal masterpiece, Rust In Peace in the year of Iomi, 1990, and not. Soon after, Megadeth embarked on a tour to support the album, co-headlining a concert series titled Clash of the Titans, alongside fellow Big Fourers, Slayer, supporting the recently released Seasons in the Abyss. The tour itself had two legs. Or else how could it walk? Oh, I'm sorry, stupid idiot brain. You won't be needed for this episode. Thank you so much. No problem. Gotta go catch up on my Instagrams. And it was on that second leg that Slayer and Megadeth were joined by the band Anthrax, which made Clash of the Titans into what was functionally a big three-fourths of thrash tour of the U.S. In a retrospective on Clash of the Titans, Slayer's Kerry King told Revolver Magazine in 2011, I remember the three of us joined together, and I knew Metallica wouldn't be a part of it because they didn't need us. They're on the black record, man. They were jettisoning themselves to superstardom. And while the tour may have been notable for the one band that wasn't there, I do want to point out the one particular band that was there as the tour opener for reasons I will come back to a little bit later. Presenters initially hired San Francisco-based thrash band Death Angel to bat leadoff, but in early 1990, Death Angel scored backstage passes to see the actual Angel of Death, 
when their tour bus crashed en route to a show in Las Vegas, nearly killing the band's drummer. Never meet your heroes. So Death Angel broke up, which made them somewhat less attractive as an opening act. And then a number of possible replacements either declined or were declined to open the tour, including Pantera, Obituary, Exodus, Creator, and a band called Violence, which I can only assume was a grind metal string quartet. Like Anal Cunt. Remember that joke? <laughs> Love that joke. Eventually, presenters chose a square peg to fill their round hole. Ayy. Hiring a young and upcoming band that was regularly harassed and roundly hated by audiences that had come to see the Clash of the Titans. They weren't a thrash band, and it seemed that fans weren't even convinced that they were a metal band. They certainly didn't sound like any metal that they had heard. Yet. So Clash of the Titans' opening act spent much of the tour dodging foreign objects and getting into fights with Slayer fans. Very uncharacteristic of them. But the reception would soon change, and perhaps the unruly thrash fans could be forgiven for their initial hesitance, as they may have sensed that the sound they were hearing meant that in a matter of months, the heavy metal that they loved would never be the same. song called We Die Young, and soon after the Clash of the Titans tour, MTV would put Alice in Chains' second single, Man in the Box, on regular daytime rotation, catapulting their debut album, Facelift, to number 42 on the Billboard charts, assuring that in September, it would become the first grunge album to go gold, eventually going platinum three times over. But we are not here to talk about Alice in Chains. Yet. We're here to talk about Megadeth. Well, speaking of Megadeth, remember last episode when we compared the creative arc of the first four albums from Megadeth and Metallica? Yeah, me too. Well, I'm no Fibonacci when it comes to the maths, but we need to throw another record on the pile here, and that brings us to the grand total of five. If the first album is a hypothesis, and the second album is an expansion of that hypothesis, the third is experimentation with it, and the fourth transforms the hypothesis into a thesis. Then the fifth studio release of their respective discographies sees Metallica and Megadeth refining, and I think in the case of Metallica, reducing that thesis in an effort to reach a much broader audience. Look, I don't want to talk about how much I hate the Black Album as much as you don't want to hear it. But for the purposes of this episode, I'm gonna have to dip my little pitties back into that postulant pool of pucking bullshit we know as Metallica Metallica. The album's so nice, they didn't name it anything. As I said before, on the Black Album, Metallica reduced their musical project, and in some cases, reversed it. 
so that high school football teams across the nation could use it as hype music to take the field before getting blown out of their own homecoming 63 to nothing. Song duration takes a nosedive from the epic 8-minute, 35-second Master of Puppets and the 9-minute, 45-second And Justice for All to the brisk 5-minute, 35-second Enter Sandman. And ballads? <laughs> oh, yes. The Unforgiven and Nothing Else Matters made Metallica so much fucking money that they could perhaps be forgiven for consequently deciding that literally nothing else mattered to them. Just not by me. Metallica also mostly ignored or just deliberately undercut the political themes of their first four records, replacing the war is bad sentiment with songs like No Remorse, Fight Fire with Fire, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Disposable Heroes, and One with the Unless America Does It sentiment of Don't Tread on Me. And finally, the literature-inspired cosmic doom of H.P. Lovecraft and songs like The Call of Cthulhu and The Thing That Should Not Be were discarded in favor of more generic and cartoonish boogeymen like the Boogeyman, also werewolves and an evil puppet. Sad but true. That's not me saying it's sad but true. It is, but it's also the subject of sad but true. Evil puppet. Sad but true is about an evil puppet. And it did the trick. Metallica Metallica has been certified platinum 16 times and stayed on the Billboard 200 for 550 weeks, becoming the second longest charting album of all time behind Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. We now return to our regularly scheduled episode of Megadeth, already in progress. No, God! No, God, please, no! 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 This seems like a bad time. We'll come back. So Metallica becomes the biggest metal band of all time, and it likely had an impact on Mustaine, who said in his memoir, I wanted a number one hit. I wanted what Metallica had, even if it meant selling a piece of my soul to the devil. And at the time of writing it, he meant that literally. But rather than eternally indenture himself to Mephistopheles, Mustaine, Marty Friedman, Dave Ellison, and Nick Menza returned to the studio to create a follow-up to 1990's Rust in Peace. In 1999, Mustaine told journalist John Wiederhorn, Wiederhorn? I hope he chose weed. In 1991, we saw the writing on the wall that an era was ending. Looking back on that time, Mustaine mused, We knew we couldn't make rust in peace again. It was just too heavy. We know and we've done our best in any particular field. Trying to make another five magics would be horseshit. It would just sound like Crocus or any of those other bands that had made the same record over and over and over again. They really need to take a look at what they're doing because they're jipping the fans. Jipping, huh? In 1999. Well, sometimes looking back is still a bit fuzzy. But as the 1990s were beginning to dawn on them, like Metallica, Dave Mustaine and Megadeth were trying to reach out to a broader audience on their fifth record and to expand their sound without compromising their integrity. For all the commercial and critical success of the Black Album, Metallica failed to navigate this transition so spectacularly that they never really recovered. From the increasingly bizarre and desperate attempts to maintain their avant-garde status, including group haircuts, guyliner, and collaborations that transformed individual members into living room furniture, Metallica has coasted on their first five albums for over 30 years now, and no amount of retconning their decision to exchange an artistic sense of purpose for a garage filled with vintage cars will ever redeem that. Metallica are the New York Yankees of metal. 
They haven't won a championship in a decade and a half, but music magazines and diehard fans overhype every new and increasingly mediocre release by assuring us this is gonna be their year. It isn't. Their year was 1991, and in 2023, the Wikipedia entry for the term sellout devotes two full paragraphs to the album Metallica Metallica beneath a picture of the band performing a live set in 2004. As with most things, Keith Buckley of Every Time I Die said it best. I can't go back to what I was, Metallica without the drugs. But from out of the shadow of this ghost of music future, Megadeth released their fifth album, Countdown to Extinction, in which Metallica's former guitarist Dave Mustaine finally achieved his dream of forming a band more metal than Metallica. That is the album opener to Countdown to Extinction, a song called Skin of My Teeth, written from the perspective of a hit-and-run victim, and I'm not pointing any fingers, but if I were investigating, I'd start looking at the guy with a certain 502 on his record, if you know what I'm saying. Skin of My Teeth is not just one of Megadeth's best openers. It also sets the tone for the entire album, in which Mustaine, Ellefson, Menza, and Friedman are effortlessly incorporating mid-tempo and melody into the heavy metal DNA of Megadeth. Skin of Our Teeth isn't, by any stretch of the imagination, a ballad. In fact, there isn't a ballad anywhere on this album. In fact, the closest they get is the now-standard Dave fantasizes about murdering Diana Aragon that has happened at least once on every Megadeth album up to this point, and on Countdown takes the form of Dave throwing the switch on his own electric chair for the crime. This Was My Life is another standout track on an album full of standout tracks because you know it's a great record when every track is so good that almost none of them stand out. It's just another day. It was just another fight. It was words strung into sentences. It was doomed to not be right.
Megadeth released four singles off Countdown, the first of which occupies that second slot on the album. Previously given to Killing Is My Business, Peace Sells, Set the World Afire, and Hangar 18. The song is inspired by the film The Manchurian Candidate, about how the wrong man, with the right amount of power, can shepherd entire populations toward their own destruction. singles off Countdown broke into the mainstream rock charts around the high 20s, Sweating Bullets at 27, and the song you just heard, Symphony of Destruction, at 29, proving that Megadeth didn't have to discard their political perspective in order to achieve mainstream success. The video for the song even depicts a society falling into chaos in the wake of a political assassination. Megadeth uses their breakthrough record to scream at you through your radio and television, don't trust your leaders. Symphony is very much in keeping with Megadeth's history of incorporating their political perspective into the music. The only way it could have been more political is if they had aimed the song at one leader in particular. Which is what happens on the next track, Architecture of Aggression, written about the Gulf War and the brutality of Saddam Hussein, in which Mustaine writes, Ensuring power vacuum, a toppled leader dies. His body fuels the power fire, and the flames rise to the sky. One side of his face a kiss, the other genocide. Time to pay with your ass a worldwide suicide. That's a pretty specific, if poetic, description of the execution of the Iraqi Prime Minister, Abd al-Karim Qasim by the Ba'athists, and Saddam's eventual rise to power. The only way that could be more political was if they put audio samples of the guy saying some stupid shit on the track. Which is what happens on the next song, Foreclosure of a Dream, the album's second single, a deliberate and pointed critique of the Bush administration. Sorry, the Bush administration Dick Cheney was in. Sorry, the Bush administration Dick Cheney was in and went to war with Iraq. Sorry, the Bush administration that Dick Cheney was in and went to war with Iraq for a reason. The first one. I should have just let off with that. I mean, my 
God, Mustaine is making an economic policy argument with heavy metal. And look, it's not even one that I really agree with. Like Metallica, the point isn't necessarily what political argument they're making, but rather that they are making one with their music, as they have on previous records. By my count, on And Justice For All, seven songs, Blackened, the title track, Eye of the Beholder, One, Shortest Straw, Harvester of Sorrow, and Dyer's Eve have political or politically adjacent meanings. The Black Album has one, Don't Tread on Me. And the reason this particular political sentiment makes me rage vomit is because it's the polar opposite of the anti-war argument the band has made on every album up to that point. Yes, you could make a case for the god that failed, but the rest of it is werewolves, boogeyman, hobos, and evil puppets. Early Megadeth fans may argue that Countdown to Extinction is a sellout record the way I argue that Metallica Metallica is, but what that essentially boils down to is a gripe about song length and tempo. These two albums are frequently paired for obvious reasons. They were the records that introduced the world outside of heavy metal to Metallica and Megadeth. And while both made sonic adjustments to offer a more radio-friendly sound, Countdown to Extinction is still Megadeth. It's just Megadeth wrapped in a somewhat less abrasive package, while the Black Album is an utterly flawless package wrapped around hypocritical dog shit. But I mega digress. Countdown continues with the title track, a rhetorical excoriation of trophy hunting. James Hetfield. Sorry, I had a... Uh, James Hetfield in my throat there. High Speed Dirt, a song about skydiving without a parachute, which is how both my grandmothers passed. Not at the same time, it was separate incidents. Psychotron, about a cyborg assassin. Wait, sorry. He's part bionic and organic, but according to my notes here, he's not, in point of fact, a cyborg. Also one of Megadeth's darkest fucking songs called Captive Honor about Jared Fogel's time in prison, and an album closer that, next to Holy Wars, could be my favorite Megadeth song of all time. As a songwriter, as a lyricist, as just a musician, Dave Mustaine is at an absolute pinnacle at the end of Countdown to Extinction. Remember the raw emotion that we talked about on Peace Cells? I think you can hear Mustaine channeling that energy again here, on a song called Ashes in Your Mouth. It contains what is one of the most plaintive and affecting choruses in all of heavy metal, but it's not just that. The playwright, Ben Johnson, famously said of his friend William Shakespeare that he was not of an age, but for all time. And there is something about this song, and particularly that chorus, which only occurs in the song once, that feels, for lack of a better term, eternal. Ashes in Your Mouth is a poetically anti-war song, but almost nothing in the poetry is specific to modern warfare. The phrase itself comes from a 14th century writer named John de Mandeville, but so much of the lyricism predates even that, recalling chapter 2 of Isaiah from the Old Testament. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This song doesn't sound like a typical, modern, political argument against war, but rather a timeless argument, a human argument that we, or rather some of us, have been making since the inception of war itself. So here it is. 
Ashes in Your Mouth, a song about the eternal horrors of human conflict, not of an age, but for all time. So Countdown to Extinction ends with a simple, fading repetition, a timeless plea for mercy, 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 mercy. I'm going to take a break here, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the follow-up to Megadeth's breakthrough record, the follow-up to that, and all the follow-ups that follow after as we conclude our three-part series on Dave Mustaine and Megadeth, Feel free to follow along. I like 